As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Hello, Talent Magnet community. I just wanted to uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode. You are going to hear from one of our faculty, Don Frerichs, who is leading an extraordinary leader series as a part of the Talent Magnet platform. Don is one of our longstanding faculty members. He's an incredible coach, an incredible leader, and he is highlighting extraordinary leaders as a part of this series. So we hope you enjoy. Thank you for tuning in. And without further ado, I turn it over to Don. Welcome, everyone, to the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. My name is Don Frerichs, and I'm a guest host for Mike Sipple. And today, I'm very excited because we're starting the Extraordinary Leaders series. This is an idea of mine, and I thought that if we could provide some form of value to all of you listeners that are out there that are looking for ways to develop themselves as leaders, that this would be a good use of your time. And I'm super excited today to start with gentleman that I met just recently over the past few months, and I have the utmost respect for all the things that he has accomplished, Georg Smut-Thomas from Germany. Welcome, Georg. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more about your story. What we've already talked about in the past in our conversations has been very enlightening, and I uh, have the utmost respect for what you've done and what you've become as a leader. Uh, Let me just share with our listeners a little bit about your background. Georg is a is passionate about building iconic brands and personal leadership to drive great results. During his three-decade executive leadership career in the fast-moving consumer goods industry with Procter & Gamble and then Swedish Essity, he worked on global brands like Pampers, Duracell, Pantene, Antenna, and local icons like Tempo. He has managed and coached talent with various backgrounds at every stage of their career, from entry-level to retirement, and at every level of seniority. Georg has done business on every continent except Antarctica. There's one you'll have to get done before you fully retire. And he's moved around the world once with his family. Not many of us can say that. He now works as an independent advisor based in southern Germany. So thank you for offering to share your insights, Georg. And as I said before, if we can help our listeners with just one great insight about how they can develop themselves to be extraordinary leaders, that would be a good use of their time. Maybe we could start with your eclectic background. I think that one of our conversations pointed to the fact that you're, you've got a little different background than most people might have after 30 plus years in, in business. And uh, maybe you could start with that. I love your, as you referred to it as colorful. <laughs> yes, thank you, Don. Yeah, I uh, originally set out to become a uh, university professor. I started reading and started reading English literature at a relatively early age. I grew up in northern Germany and we still had occupation forces there and the occupation forces had a uh, local radio station. And of course, they played the coolest music. So I kind of uh, got got sucked into Anglo-Saxon culture, started reading. And then uh, at some point when it became uh, time to decide what to get educated on, I uh, kind of uh, reflected back and said, what have I done all, all of this time? Well, reading English and American literature. So uh, kind of that became my course of study, which I did, including a stint in Chicago and in the US. But then when it became time to, uh, okay, what do I do as a career now? I realized that I wasn't, was a little bit more curious, but it was too late for a, uh, another course of study. So I then uh, looked around for companies that would do, it's almost like on-the-job training, or where I could get an MBA while working and uh, ended up at Procter & Gamble. So with a literature degree, that obviously, it's definitely not something that I would recommend. So <laughs> it's not something that you should take away from this podcast to recommend to your kids, because it's really a high-risk gamble. But it uh, definitely has shaped me as a leader and it has also influenced how I operate as a leader. 
because uh, as you can imagine, coming in with a literature degree into a uh, business organization, you come in as a total outsider, which then means you are automatically not part of the in-group because you haven't gone to the same school. You're not conversant on the usual topics. You're learning everything kind of from scratch, as it were, or you're stitching kind of the parachute while you're flying. So do it on the fly. That is definitely shaped me as a leader because you're much, much more kind of observant, much, much more self-aware, and also much, much more trying to formulate a hypothesis of what is expected of me in this different environment, and also much, much more aware what does success look like. I think you described yourself because, uh, and, and I'm not sure you said specifically, you actually earned your PhD from Northwestern, which by the way, is a great pedigree uh, here in the States, as you know. And so you got a lot of attention, but maybe more as an academic. And people would have thought, well, you probably are just going to go into university and be a great professor. So that was kind of the direction you were going for a while, right? And what was it that made you think that that using that degree, because I think a lot of our listeners are probably thinking like, how did you get from philosophy (laughs) into business? How did you go from a PhD into working for Procter & Gamble. What was, what was the big shift there for you? Mm-hmm. P&G is very, very uh, marketing-centric, you could say, or brand-centric company. So marketing, advertising, communications definitely is high-valued. So if you think about uh, literature, if you think about philosophy as it's almost like communication studies or as it's uh, rhetoric, the history of rhetoric, advertising can consider to be a form of rhetoric. So as somebody who had spent a lot of time in studying historical examples of A, how to convince people, but then also kind of how to paint a picture maybe of a different reality, but really how to communicate that already I realized afterwards I already came with much, much more experience than also kind of thoughts about how to communicate effectively. So there was a natural connection into the work that I did. I entered functionally into a marketing, so it wasn't too much of a stretch. And again, as a professor or somebody who was trained to be a professor, you also need to be able to communicate, which not just as a marketer, but also then as a leader in a very, very strong leadership culture, being able to communicate clearly, being clear on what is it that I want to drive as a point, being able to kind of deal with questions and objections like you would in a academic setting or in a teaching seminar setting that already helped me. But of course, it's much, much more of a general skill and kind of a lot of the business business knowledge I picked up by a self-study and on the job and kind of formal training by uh, trying things and then finding solutions to it almost on a uh, live case study basis. So not in an artificial setting, but in a real life setting. That's great. I know that we want to talk today about how you practice and how you got good at, at being a leader. But let's first answer, what is leadership in your mind? I believe you said something to me one time that if you can't follow, you can't be a good leader. I'm not sure a lot of our listeners will understand what you mean by that. I think that ties into your definition of of leadership. How do you see leadership organically for you? What was it like for you as a leader at P&G and other places that you've worked? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really very, very interesting trajectory. I, I never set out to be a leader. So th- there are people who uh, have this vision of themselves. They want to be, be a leader. They uh, really want to lead other people. For me, it was I always wanted to achieve some things. And initially, as I reflect back, really got into uh, practicing leadership in a uh, kind of mountaineering or rock climbing setting. So here I am, 14 years old, summer vacation with the family, kind of, we're chugging up this mountain. We have the summit in sight, but we can't get to the summit because there's a stretch of uh, quite a steep snow slope and we don't have the equipment, we don't have the experience to get up there. And I get mad as hell kind of being stopped short of that summit. So I decide then and there, I'm going to get the skills, I'm going to learn how to get there so that I never will be held back again. So then joined the Alpine Club. And how I learned was by going climbing, going mountaineering with 
all of these people who did it. And as you know, in these kind of endeavors, it's totally a team effort. So rock climbing, okay? How this works is first person leading on the rope kind of climbs up until the rope kind of reaches its end, then builds a so-called belay, a stance. Then the other person follows, but then continues past the point where the initial leader kind of climbed, continues to get belayed, and again, climbs up until the rope runs out. So you take turns leading and following, if you will. Obviously, different skills. You then also have a little bit of tactics sometimes involved when you know there's a stretch that particularly plays to the strengths of one person. That really, for me, was a formative experience. Number one, there needs to be a tremendous amount of trust. There's also a tremendous responsibility placed on you because you have somebody else's life in your hands. Mm. If you kind of screw up and they uh, slip and you uh, don't belay properly, they may actually they may actually die. So there needs to be needs to be trust. There needs to be uh, a skill and understanding of skill, your own skill level, but then also your teammates. And it is a team effort. I mean, a very few people, kind of the so-called free soloists, who are out there on their own, but they are a tiny, tiny, tiny mm. minority. Everybody else kind of goes as a team. So that leadership paradigm, if you will, and of course it doesn't, doesn't work. If you are following or if you're belaying, you cannot tell the person leading how to lead their stretch of the route, effectively, they have to do it in their own way. So that interplay, you have to lead and you have to support somebody else as they are leading. And you have to do it in a very, very agile, very flexible, very situation-based way that I think really formed me a very, very early formative experience on myself as a leader. I've subsequently approached every leadership challenge or every leadership job as I would as a mountaineer. It's not, not just two people on a rope. Oftentimes, it's, there's a five or six, or if you get into an expedition, kind of larger groups. But there's always this, everybody has to carry their leadership weight and everybody has, has to be able to follow. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Uh, that's beautiful. I love the foundation of leadership in your experience coming from something outside of the classroom, something outside of even the business world. And it tells me a lot about you as an individual because it feels like you were a great learner. You were an individual that noticed what was happening to him first on the trip up the mountain with your family and then as you did uh, more mountaineering with others. But it's fascinating to me as well that you did, you brought this into your life. You know, it wasn't just a, an observation about something external to business, but it became foundational for you. And I would think that perhaps part of that philosophy background that you have might be helpful in terms of helping you think about what matters most. I assume that you've gotten a lot of accolades about being a great leader because it seems like you have a perspective that focuses on others first. And as you mentioned, you go from leader to follower to leader to follower. And there's this constant interplay between followership and leadership. How did you find out initially that you were probably pretty good at this? Did you get feedback directly from a boss or was it from your direct reports? Where did it show up initially? <laughs> I never thought about myself as a leader. It was always done in the, in the same way. Uh, I didn't aspire to be a leader. I, uh, there were certain things that I wanted to uh, kind of get to goals, like that summit. I mean, it drove me nuts not being able to get onto that one summit. And then, uh, okay, what do I need in order to get there? Or then you get into different settings, kind of a school magazine, kind of some ideas of what I would like to read in a school magazine, and then just saying, hey, I have this vision, I take the initiative, and then of course it involves leadership. So one of the uh, really, really eye-opening things early on in P&G, I mean, that was a lot of leadership talent, and I always assumed that everybody was like myself. and. They didn't kind of think, or they ticked like I did. I mean, you notice I'm, I'm a very, very curious person. 
I'm very uh, kind of much looking for discovering new things, doing different things. And I thought other people would be motivated by the same things. And so kind of going internationally, I was surprised. Not everybody was dreaming about going to strange or different countries in the same way. I was totally surprised somehow as we then started to, to talk or started to, to share that other people had very, very different leadership ideals, paradigms, styles of leading, and they may have been as effective, but were completely different. So I noticed, and of course, I always measured my progress or my success, not so much by what people said, but always, do I get to that summit? So that vision that I have, mm. or the output, or the goal, do we jointly together with me as a team member and as a leader, or with what I have to contribute and what we do together, do we achieve something that I would say, this is good work? But I never somehow internalized this as I did a good leadership job, but it was more, hey, we did something really, really cool that wouldn't have been there if we together hadn't taken the initiative. And of course, I do my part in it like I would on a rock climbing tour. I mean, if there's something that I do particularly well, like uh, climbing a chimney, stemming technique, I would then say, hey, that chimney, can I lead that portion? And we would organize the route accordingly. And that then works, uh, works beautifully. Instead of saying, hey, this was, Georg, uh, you did an out outstanding leadership job here, <laughs> kind of do more of it. It was more kind of, hey, we did some pretty cool things. We achieved some pretty amazing results. And then I would say, hmm, this was fun and this was good. And it measures up to my expectations on uh, meaningful or great work. I appreciate that. One of the things I haven't heard you use in terms of describing yourself as an adjective is competitive. I also, <laughs> I get the sense that you pretty strongly like to accomplish things that, you know, if there's a way and a will, you're going to figure it out with your team to, there's always an output to leadership. It isn't just to be seen as a good guy or seeing that you created a good team, but you're trying to create results. And I think that my perspective of you is that you have done a great job of always driving your teams to higher level of performance by including all of them, as you talked about, by your curiosity and having trust and respect show up on that team. And it's your humility that enables them to want to be a part of your team. And that humility goes a long way. Would you mind if I give you a little feedback? Yeah. So for our listeners, this is uh, feedback that Georg doesn't know that I have, but this is, was my way of validating, is, is he truly an extraordinary leader? And this is one person's perspective. He said, Georg is truly and genuinely a caring person. And the story that he briefly told was back in 2010, there was a significant earthquake in Chile. And during this time frame, this person said, you somehow managed to have the time in the middle of the crisis to be on top of how people were personally dealing with this. And I couldn't think of anything that would be more relevant to today than what must have been going on in 2010 for you. Do you, do you remember that time? Can you oh, I remember it very, very well. Explain a little bit to our listeners about what you did from a leadership perspective that seemed to, to make a difference. It might be helpful to them as they think about how do we respond to the pandemic. Yeah, it was very, very hard. Not because, I mean, this was a, a major, major earthquake. A lot of people got killed. A lot of people lost their livelihoods. And there was a lot of uncertainty because it wasn't clear where there was going to be more. In Santiago de Chile, we weren't at the epicenter, but uh, maybe uh, 100, 150 miles away. So it was still a pretty significant impact. It was hardest for me because I'm somebody who is very, very, very much lives in the future. So I very quickly kind of think here is what is going to happen. Here's what we need to pay attention to. Here's what we need to do to force myself back into the present, realizing that not everybody is as maybe future-oriented or not everybody takes like myself and connecting with people emotionally because if I immediately jump into, okay, here's what we need to do, here's uh, what's first of business, it doesn't take account of what's on people's minds. And if the most fundamental uh, needs, I mean, this was like physical 
security, uh, one person, for instance, in the team uh, couldn't use their apartment anymore, was wrecked. If they don't have a place to live, they will not be able to focus on the job. Mm. And in the same with people are kind of emotionally uh, unsettled or if they're worrying about their family, they will not be able to uh, take care of business. So really as a leader, to force myself to take time to not assume everybody would be like I am, very much, oh, different situation, just like in a nanosecond, not grieve about, oh, here were all the nice plans that we had and here's everything that we lost, but immediately jump into, okay, here's what has changed, here's what we will do now. But force myself to, okay, go with the team and with my teammates through these stages of change, which is uh, kind of, you know, denial and, and, and so on and so forth, and take time so as not to separate or not to lose. And this is obviously based also on my own experience where I have worked in teams or I've worked for leaders who did not have the patience to just take that little, little extra time to kind of find out what's on my mind or what's bothering me to show that they don't just care about their own agenda, but they actually truly value me as a member of their team and care about me. And that makes it made a big, big difference to me. Kind of, wow, here's somebody who took the time and who actually went out of their way to care about me. So then, of course, I will repay it by making sure I take care of them and our business. And that really stuck with me. It uh, sounds so authentic the way that you describe it. It didn't sound to me like it came out of a leadership book, which I really love the way that you just noticed something about yourself, which is self-leadership. And then you brought that into your business and the team by saying, okay, wait a minute, maybe it doesn't apply to everyone. How can I be a better leader for them today? And that sounded to me like you had to actually take time to be curious about what they were going through, the emotional journey of every situation that's a tragedy. And that's what so many people are going through today, the emotional ups and downs that we all experience from anxiety to depression to just a kind of a, a funk of, I'm not sure what's going to happen because there's so much uncertainty today. I think many leaders could do exactly what, what you did at that time. You made a difference. Just in case our listeners... Oh, go ahead. Funny, Don. I have, have to admit, it's not something that came to me naturally. So this is not out of a book, but it's the school of hard knocks. I've had some uh, fantastic people around me who told me, Georg, you're a technocrat. You're like a robot. And who actually took the time to uh, tell me to give me feedback and to uh, help me develop some of that uh, self-awareness. And I tend to be very, very impatient. I tend to be very future-oriented. And you said earlier, I uh, really, really like winning. I like to kind of put a ding in the universe, if you will. So when people don't see what is obvious to me, dealing with that lack of clarity really, really can be testing for, for me still today. And I've been fortunate enough to have people who really, really then did a kind of a body slam saying, you cannot work like this. Oh, gosh, I have to know more about that because I think you just touched on the part of the conversation we wanted to have about how do you develop yourself as a leader? And a lot of times people want to talk to me about leadership training and events and things that are interesting, like podcasts and books and and all of those things are really good and helpful to provide information and to intellectually stimulate us. But go back to the first time you got that feedback about being a technocrat. You were probably at a pretty high level in the organization already. There was a choice to either ignore that feedback or say, yeah, I get it, but that's just the way I am, or to actually think about it and begin a process of change. What was it like for you back then when you got that feedback? And then how did you take that and start to develop yourself in a different way? I was actually, actually fairly, fairly junior. And of course, I mean, as a taking or learning or being open to that kind of feedback is much, much, uh, much, much easier. And the chance that actually somebody uh, dares to, uh, to help you 
is also much, much higher. So I was fairly, uh, fairly junior, and I must have annoyed somebody uh, so much that they act and they believed that there was potential. So they didn't just say, I mean, what a jerk. Yeah. And didn't act on it, but actually took the time and did a body slam. And I was totally, totally surprised. And I've kind of, okay, you're just jealous because you're not as smart as I am. You know, you tend to push away. But then I said, okay, let me just, let me just slow down a little bit. Maybe there is something to it. And instead of justifying myself, let me ask what it is that isn't effective. And it's like, let me try to articulate a working hypothesis. So it's like an experiment. Oh, here's something that is unexpected. So let me go back to that and let me try to explain why this happened. And then let me try to test this hypothesis and try out a few things. Hmm. And that is, we talk a lot about what are important things as you develop as a leader. I'm a big, big believer in the 70-20-10 model, which is 70% uh, really uh, stretching assignments where you can learn new things. And in case uh, you're wondering, even if you don't change assignments right now, this COVID health and economic crisis is the biggest challenging assignment we all have as leaders right now. So it's a fantastic opportunity. But this is... 70% 70% is actually leading and doing your job, which includes as a leader. Second, 20% is really having people who can give you feedback. So people who know something about leadership and who can help you, help you either by positively reinforcing or by sharing what works for them or by doing a body slam mm-hmm. like I received. And then there's the re- remaining 10% which is the form of which you find in books, in training programs, and maybe executive coaching and and so on and so forth. Most important is the 70%, and that, of course, includes you, me, forming a hypothesis. So it's like, here are my leadership beliefs. Mm -hmm. Let me write them down like a scientific working hypothesis for an experiment And then let me see what works and let me modify this based on what I see in day-to-day practice. Be this at a very, very initial junior level or be this as a very, very senior executive because you continue growing and learning and refining your leadership hypothesis. That's wonderful. I'd like to to shift our conversation to that 70%. I think you're touching on something that's so profound. If the 70-20-10 model works, and I also believe, as you do, Georg, that it does, it seems like we spend a lot of our energy describing the 10% activities. And occasionally, as you started out this conversation by giving the feedback about being a technocrat, we'll offer stories, but not too often about getting feedback that's corrected in that manner. But sometimes those stories are there. The most interesting stories, though, are the ones about what we do organically to develop ourselves as we're doing our work as leaders. Can you describe any experiences or stories that you have about as you're growing as a leader, as you're forming this hypothesis, as you're testing the parts of the hypothesis, as you referred to, what was that like and what did you find worked and and what didn't work for you as a leader? What what accelerated your development and what didn't? Yeah, it really really is that, that recipe for achieving mastery at every skill. There's a fascinating book out there is called Peak, uh, The Science of Success, and it describes a kind of habit or process of uh, what the author calls deliberate practice, which really is any skill. I mean, you can talk about learning a musical instrument, learning to play golf or rock climbing. I mean, pick any skill. You only learn it via practicing. You only learn if there is very, very quick feedback, I mean, golf is great in that respect. Stroke, okay, it either works or it doesn't. So you have that immediate feedback. And so it's do a lot of work on it, so-called deliberate practice, and practice things that don't come naturally to you. So something that's new that is stretching, because otherwise you're just repracticing something that you already know and it's not really deliberate. 
currently starts, you tend to drift. Secondly, very important to get that immediate feedback so that you can tell action, does it lead to the desired impact or is it inconsequential? And then thirdly, learn from the best. So try to find out what is it that the most successful at the skill, the best practitioners, what is it that they do and what differentiates them from others? So uh, same as as a leader. I mean, lead, 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 and reflect what I just did. How well did that work? Reflecting then also means go out and ask. So ask somebody who you trust and who you respect. And by the way, this can also be a direct report. Go to them and say, hey, that meeting we just had together, I need your help. Kind of, I was so much in the middle of the battle that I uh, couldn't really observe myself anymore. Tell me a little bit how that went and tell me honestly and tell me as somebody who was part of the group. So it's not asking for compliment. It's not asking for validation, but it's asking for, like from a coach, okay, here's somebody who observes you as you practice, but you need to do this immediately. And it needs to be somebody who you respect and you trust. Number one, they will be able to pick out so you trust their judgment. And also, here's somebody who in you creates that openness to actually listen. So deliberate practice, make sure the feedback mechanism is there in any skill that you pick up, including leadership, mm-hmm. and learn from the best. And uh, the reflection, as you talked about, too, on, as a part of that, just kind of noticing what's happening, what's working, getting feedback. It, it sounds to me like you were intentional at times throughout your career where you did focus on leadership in that way. Can you give us some specific examples or, or stories where you just kind of remember doing that? I mean, this is, this is so funny. I need to start with, again, a uh, almost legal disclaimer, which is I have learned that different people learn differently. Mm. So in the spirit of complete disclosure, I am a very, very reflective, I'm a very, very uh, kind of, uh, you would say, head-centric learner. So last year, skiing with my younger son. So we had a uh, had some uh, coaching sessions because we want, just wanted to get better. So one day, our coach had a conflict, family conflict, so we got a, got a different coach. And it, it, at night, my son tells me, you know, uh, Ralph, the trainer we had today, he's so much better then Rob, who we had uh, the day before, he doesn't talk so much. You know, he just kind of, oh, here, look at me. I show you how it's done and then do it. And I said, ah, this is so funny. I didn't think he was particularly effective, but clearly he wasn't effective for me because he didn't explain. He didn't help me understand how it works, which for me is key in order to do something. So it means always understanding and then trying to apply it. For my son, it's, okay, let me see how it works and then give it a try. So every night I would sit down, write pages and pages of notes on what I had learned that day, what to practice, mistakes I made, and so on and so forth. My son would just play on his phone or watch a movie, wouldn't take any notes. So this tells you how I'm kind of skiing with my head. Mm -hmm. He's skiing with his legs. Very, very different learning styles. So for me, as a, and this is also obviously how I approach, approach leadership. So as I, you observe what works, what doesn't work. And then at some point, I pick up some things. Here's something clearly for me as somebody who's being led does not work. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let me think about why that is. And then let me formulate, and let me formulate, okay, here's a watch out. Here is a mistake I never want to make. And I want to remember, always also with this view of, okay, let me build a model. Let me build a recipe, which, again, it tells you there's there's a little bit of a teacher or a professor in me trying to understand and then trying to transmit. Here's some understanding to tell others how it can work so that their learning can be accelerated. So it seems, Georg, that you are a tremendous learner and, and a lot of your learning started with knowing yourself 
And self-leadership can be the biggest hurdle to leading others. If we can't lead ourselves or if we don't know ourselves to the degree that like you have just explained yourself to the degree that you had kind of understood yourself, it really becomes a big challenge. I just want to say to our listeners that leadership starts within ourselves and we can't go outward to others unless we really have some idea who we are, what matters most, what we're good at and what we're not necessarily good at. Um, For our listeners, could you help them understand the value of working for a poor or bad leader? I think you said something to me uh, earlier about how much can be learned. Reading a fascinating book, it's called The Age of Eisenhower, about the president of the 50s, about his presidency. And Eisenhower actually worked for almost a decade for Douglas MacArthur, who is also general, but their leadership styles were completely different. Uh, MacArthur was an incredible prima donna, very, very difficult to work with, a very, very polarizing personality. And MacArthur totally, absolutely hated MacArthur's leadership style. Mm. And in fact, it's almost like used him as an example of the kind of officer that he did not want to become to articulate his own leadership model. So definitely, we've all had, you and I and everybody, we've had our share of bad bosses. And we can either say, okay, this wastes waste of time. I hope that it changes soon, either because I change or they get changed. Or we can say, let me use this opportunity to uh, articulate what I want to do different and to see if I can actually make a difference in helping others who will also struggle with that person. So one thing that has always worked for me is in a situation like that, assume that you are not the only one who is suffering. The best thing you can do is find some allies, not to fight your boss, but actually to support each other because it can be emotionally incredibly draining. And then also, if you surround yourself with uh, people who have a kind of common vision of how things could be different, together, I think it's much, much easier to positively uh, drive a change and to also drive a change maybe with that leader who's struggling uh, in one area. And then secondly, uh, I've always seen particularly tough bosses as a challenge, like tough direct reports as a challenge for working harder to find out what they're good at. Because usually there's a spark of genius, even in somebody who on average doesn't do a lot of things, not very well. But there's something that they do particularly well and probably something they do better than anybody else. True for all of us, also true for a bad boss. If they show up as a bad boss, it's probably because they're not doing what they do best. Mm. So maybe I can find out or help find out what that is and maybe find a way to have them do more of what they really, really enjoy, what they're really, really good at, and where they can really, really make a difference in the team. So it's almost like as parents, what we do when uh, we have children who are maybe misbehaving, catch them when they're good, which then puts the onus back on you as a parent, puts the onus back on me uh, to help the people who are on my team, including my team leader or my leader, to become more effective. Now, there is one big, big caveat, which is I have always checked if a leader is misbehaving, is Mm. that a systemic issue? So is this a broken culture where that person is uh, not an exception, but everybody is like that? Because then I have said it probably the balance between being able to learn and being able to make a difference and really being ground into little pieces is probably a little bit too much shifted uh, into the it's far, far, far too risky. But if it was, hey, here's just one person who is extreme, a little bit like Eisenhower. MacArthur was extreme in, at his time and at the, in the military, U.S. military of the time, in the Allied military of the time. So if it's not a systemic issue, you can learn a lot and you can make a difference. It's not easy. It builds character. Absolutely. It sounds like you never want to waste a bad boss <laughs> because there's so much to be learned about them, about their behaviors, what works, what doesn't work, about your reaction. 
and just for our listeners, you know, we don't wish that anyone has a bad boss, but for those of you that do, there's still a lot to be learned about leadership and what's most important. I think you said, Georg, uh, you can learn a thousand times more from a bad boss. And I've had many other leaders say that they really became clear about what mattered most to them as leader because of the people that they worked for or followed or observed as bad bosses. So it kind of infuses into your character what you will not do, which can be equally as powerful as learning what you will do. And I think hopefully uh, many people understand that. Organically, it sounds to me like you spent a lot of time in reflection, understanding yourself and others, what worked as leadership, in leadership, how to build trust and how to build teams. And, and over probably a process of of years, you became an extraordinary leader. You rose to the ranks of vice president within Procter & Gamble, which I would guess less than 1% of the people that actually uh, come into the brand organization actually get to that level. So congratulations on that. But this organic process just never ended for you, and you continue to do it today. And, and for our listeners, since we're focusing on how you became a great leader, organic is connecting the dots. It's being able to figure out from bad leaders as well as good leaders, all types of learning, feedback, like the feedback that you got about being a technocrat. All of that goes into your learning process that enabled you to become the kind of leader and the kind of person you are today. For especially our young listeners and those that are maybe next generation leaders, one of the questions they might have, Georg, is how can I in today's accelerated environment, an environment where leadership is needed today and I can't wait for 10, 20 years to develop myself organically, what would you recommend to those people that are searching for maybe a different gear, a faster way to get to development? Or is there no easy and a no faster way to do it? Is there a new paradigm around leadership development? And if so, what are your thoughts about it? Actually, there are a couple of aspects. I talk about what hasn't changed first, which is uh, like with any skill, there isn't a pill to become kind of top class in it. Not in sports. If you want to run a marathon, you can't just take a pill and run below two hours tomorrow. I mean, yeah, if you take pills, it's called doping. Right. Like with any skill, you have to work at it to become good. And that just takes time. It doesn't mean that it should be boring, but it means you cannot jump to the top immediately. Well, what you can do is always watch for that learning curve to really, really make sure that you do not get into a rut, that you try new things, that you stretch yourself, you do something that is uncomfortable, that you haven't done before, maybe that you're afraid of. So that is one thought that hasn't changed. What also hasn't changed is whatever assignment you are in, you need to shape it. So don't wait for somebody else to tell you, here is your job, but actually create the scope for leadership, create your job yourself, again, proactive, in order to stay challenged and to keep a, a steep learning curve, maybe without formally getting promoted or without formally changing jobs. There's always enough leadership challenges. There's always enough work to uh, go around. And you can pretty much pick, hey, here's something that not enough attended to. I will make it part of my job, although it maybe isn't part of my job uh, description. So these things haven't changed. They've been like this a thousand years ago. They've been like this 20 years ago. They're still there today. Practice makes perfect. And then also uh, you are in charge of your own uh, destiny. What does have changed is that information, which used to be power, or which used to be privileged, information has started to be much, much more available. So it's far, far less privileged, which then means there are some environments where hierarchical organization is still needed, but in a lot of other settings that organization maybe invented 100, 120 years ago, kind of a Tayloristic, heavily uh, kind of compartmentalized organization, an information processing machine 
is not appropriate anymore today because even at the front line, even at wherever I am in the effort, at the front line, information can be available. It's not privileged anymore, which then drives a different way of working, which is uh, today under the heading of maybe agile, characterized as agile, which is much, much more fast, empowered, autonomous, if you will. And secondly, a very, very different leadership paradigm, which is not command and control anymore, but it's much, much more networked. So being very clear on what is it that we want to achieve, what are some of the do's and don'ts, so what is off limits, but otherwise leaving the decision on how to get to the objective, how to get to the goal, much, much more to the local or to the frontline decision makers. This great book, if you want to read up on it, it's called Team of Teams. It was written by General Stanley McChrystal, who at some point led the special forces, and it is a perfect description of how a traditionally very, very hierarchical organization like the, like the military is evolving into this more networked, into this more agile leadership paradigm. And that definitely, definitely has changed the conditions for this way of leading and for this way of working were not in place when you and I started our careers 30 years ago. So definitely that has changed, and it's great news for millennial in a boomer body like myself. Hey, fantastic. I am empowered. I have access to information that 30 years ago, maybe my president, maybe my vice president would have, but nobody else. I can act on it. I don't, don't have to wait. I can take the lead and make better business decisions. Hey, fantastic. Love this today world. I agree. I agree. And I've never met a millennial in a different body. So I think you're probably right. You are unique in so many ways. I started Team of Teams last night. And I, I agree. I love the concept of the agile teams being the, the local teams on the ground. And rather than having a hierarchy where everyone would have to get the commands on how to adjust their work based on what someone from Command Central tells you to do, let the local leaders decide what needs to be done based on the, the environment that they see moment by moment. It's a great book. I, I highly recommend that. And I would just add what you said before about Erickson's work and Peak. For our listeners that have not ever looked at Peak and, and the power of intentionally practicing your leadership, they called it, as Georg said, deliberate practice. And, and they're exactly right. But deliberate or intentionally practicing your leadership and then reflecting on what's happening, what's working, what's not working, to me, seems like it could be that extra gear that people are looking for to get better faster. Of course, it doesn't happen overnight, as Georg said. But what it can happen, though, is just that you see great progress and momentum take place as a result of being more intentional about what you're actually practicing. And I would leave that with all of our listeners as a great way to, uh, to think about their own leadership development. This has been so much fun. We've probably created more content than we actually need. But is there anything, Georg, that is on your mind that you wanted to share with our listeners that we've not gotten to? Not on this, there's one thing which I've been uh, kind of formulating, I've been using for a, a very, very long time. It's something that I, as somebody gets people responsibility for the first time, what I tell people who have the leadership responsibility and they're always asking, uh, what, what is it, kind of, what is important? I, I tell them three things. The first thing is that leadership is service. It's not a reward. So it's not, mm -hmm. oh, I'm the big control now, and I can uh, kind of lord it over the others, but actually it's a responsibility. So approach it in the spirit of servant leadership. The second thing is that what we talked about before with the difficult bosses, Try to discover the genius in every person who you work with, especially with the people who are unlike you or the people who really drive you nuts because you think they are not good or they are so different. So really be patient and force yourself to discover the genius, develop respect for people who are different than you are because it, it may turn out that in a diverse team, 
your chances of success are much, much higher because not everybody has the same ideas. And then the third, third one, uh, be yourself. So don't try to impersonate a perfect leader or kind of, oh, here's Napoleon, let me be like him, or here's Jack Welch, or here's A, B, and C, or here's Eisenhower, or MacArthur, but just be yourself. So don't be afraid that uh, you won't measure up because, quite frankly, uh, you won't be effective at impersonating somebody else. And conversely, this is the one thing that nobody can beat you at, being yourself. <laughs> And so really kind of uh, relax, play it, trust your intuition, be yourself. And that definitely has worked for me, but I know it has for a lot of other people too. Well, thank you so much. I can't uh, appreciate more than you being my guest today and the time and, and the way that you poured yourself into trying to prepare and, and offer value to our listeners. And I hope, and I will say to all of our listeners, that you received at least that one thing that you were looking for that jumped out of your lap. But I imagine you have many different things that helped you in terms of thinking about leadership. Uh, as Georg just said, whether it's the service, the patience, or being yourself, all of those are so critical to who you become as a leader. And I'd like to encourage all of our listeners, first of all, a thank you to all of you for listening. But if you'd like to give us some feedback or ask a question to Georg or myself, we would love to entertain those questions and we will get back to you. You can go to talentmagnetinstitute.com slash podcast and leave a question and we will respond back to you. For today, we just say thank you and we're glad that you're with us and continue on being an extraordinary leader. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.